This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. We've got a rock star. Yes. Yes, we do. <laughs> How cool is that? We get to talk to a rock star. Or I got to talk to a rock star. You didn't. I did Sorry. not. And a real rock star, not an intellectual rock star, who we've certainly had. But no, no, this is, this is a rock star. I mean, <laughs> Claire from Yacht, you met up with her right after sh- uh, a shoot for Vice magazine. Yeah. I mean, as, as you, the listeners, are, are wondering... What is this band that fits into the conversation? Yacht is really something else. I mean, they call themselves a band, a business, and a belief system. There's a lot more going on here. Yeah. How many bands do you know that have clearly crafted manifesto is the wrong word, but really lay out a philosophical belief system that they base their band on and everything they do around? And it's a really well-developed one. And as Claire will mention later in this interview... Probably a lot of bands have attitudes like that, but Yacht is really deliberate about putting them out in the open, which is one of the reasons we found them. And they talk about a lot of ideas regarding the future. They, you know, explore ideas of utopia and dystopia. I'm really glad that we have a musician in this project now. Yeah. You know, I feel like the arts have been relatively poorly represented. But yeah, we're getting there. Art is showing up again. And we talk a little bit about art in this conversation, but we also just talk about a lot of other themes that have popped up in the project. So let's just jump into it, shall we? Sounds good. Well, uh, Yacht is a now 10-year-old band, multimedia, conceptual pop group. The name Yacht stands for Young Americans Challenging High Technology. It's taken many forms over the last 10 years. It began as a solo project of my bandmate and collaborator, Jonna Bechtolt, who is not with us at this moment in time. But, I mean, he's alive, but he's just not having this conversation with us. Uh, He started it in 2002 as a way of experimenting with computers to inject some kind of punk rock ethos into electronic music. I joined in 2008. Uh, we traveled all around the world and, and were a TV span for many years, made a record called Sea Mystery Lights. That was sort of the first record of Yacht's current incarnation, even though there were many records before. Uh, a couple years ago, we added a band, so now we tour with a rock and roll band of two other people as our live band, and we make records, and we make 
uh, a lot of other things. We make a lot of physical objects, we make texts, uh, we make all our own music videos, do all our own design. We have a kind of uh, a personal philosophy that we share with fans in the form of uh, several books that we've written, as well as just kind of a larger conversational tone that is imbued into everything that we do. And that's what obviously drew me to you guys. I would imagine. There's, there's a lot going on. Tell me a little bit about the philosophy, because most bands don't get, I mean, you have like ontologies and semiotics and things like that. And like, I don't see that when I go to the Grand Funk Railroad website. Well, maybe the Grand Funk Railroad have their own. I mean, I think every musician has a kind of philosophy. It's just not always articulated uh -huh. as directly as we do it. Uh, for us, it's just, it's a big part of our approach to music. We treat art making as though it was something of a spiritual practice. It's like the inherent miracle of making something out of nothing for us is not just a fun way to pass the time and make a living, but it's also just, it's a kind of basic magic that is appealing to us. And we always are trying to walk around that question and articulate why it's possible and how it's possible and how we approach it. We sort of began as a philosophical band in 2008. We were living in a small town in West Texas called Marfa which is known, among other things, for having an optical paranormal phenomena called the Mystery Lights of Marfa, Texas, the Marfa Mystery Lights, hence the name of our album, See Mystery Lights, which we sort of thought was a lark, and then we went and saw it for ourselves and, and realized that we were just a couple of 21st century kids with this very simplistic approach to information. We always thought that the answers were at our fingertips. We both grew up as computer nerds. We both had this sense that there was no real mystery left in the world or something. Neither of us were very spiritual people. Uh, then we saw this thing, which was objectively paranormal. I mean, it's paranormal in the sense of being outside of the normal experience. Uh, there are people that believe it's aliens and go, I mean, there's no conclusive facts about what it is. But for us, coming face to face with something that was actually and completely objectively mysterious really rearranged the way that we thought about everything about our work and, and what we were doing. We realized that most of human art and culture for most of human history came out of this a reaction to the mysterious or the numinous, you know, like there was a time not long ago, perhaps before the Industrial Revolution, if you want to define it, but maybe more recently than that, when we were surrounded by mysteries, before the occult became a kind of science, before astrology became astronomy, before, you know, mystery became medicine and knowledge and became codified with the scientific method. We lived in a world of pure chaos where the fundamental workings of the universe were just thought of as being these capricious whims of gods and demons. Uh, and that has defined a big part of what the art making experience has been for most of time. And we've lost touch with that, I think, a little bit. So we became really fascinated with, with mystery or with the unknown. And then that sort of fed into a bigger obsession with the human relationship to the universe and, and ritual, the way that we codified that relationship through science and through philosophy and through spirituality and through art and all the different pursuits uh, that aim to answer the same questions, which are, you know, what is life? How can you make something out of nothing? And where do we come from? And then from then on, we've just sort of built a kind of personal philosophy that includes what I've been talking about and some other things. And we use it as a springboard uh, to have conversations with people that are interested in having those ask. kinds of yeah, conversations. Yeah, why be so open about it? Well, I, so, I don't know. I think for us, if we came across artists that we admired and liked and we wanted to know what drove them, we would want access to that. It's just a question of transparency, I suppose. If we can provide that in a simple way, then people can, maybe people might be interested. It's really as simple as that. It's also a way of engaging people directly. I think if you walk into a room and say, hey, I'm making music, you know, let's talk about it. There's not a lot of conversation that can happen. But if you walk into a room and say, 
I believe in extraterrestrial life and free information, and I believe that we live in a chaotic and centralist universe where everyone is as empowered to be a god as the next guy, then there's a conversation there. Is there ever? <laughs> yeah, then people can say, what, no, or what, yes, and then dialogue happens. And that's, for us, that's all it really is. And it's, it's a very mutable thing. I mean, our, our belief system is something that changes as we discuss with people what they think about it, and it's something that is kind of community-built a little bit. You guys talk a lot about self-empowerment. What is the message you want to convey by talking about that? Because presumably there's an idea that sharing that is good or you wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, well, yeah, I suppose. Um, it comes from the sense that if we live in an infinitely expanding universe, then no individual person or nation or idea or planet is in the center of it. We are all the center of the universe to ourselves. And that means that our realities are as valid as the next person's reality. What Robert Anton Wilson called the reality tunnel. You know, every individual has their own reality tunnel and that we have as individuals the capacity to decorate those reality tunnels however we see fit. We can live a utterly subjective reality that pleases us and we can design that reality and we can choose what we believe and that's that's a, you know, that's a big part of being human is the, that freedom of choice. Of course that means that you can choose to become some kind of insane bigot, but it also means that you can you know, be a, however you define a good person. The idea simply is that everyone can write their own holy book if they want to. Everyone can define the world as they see fit and live in that, in that definition of the world and it can be as valid as the next guy's experience. That's mostly just designed to make people feel like they can do whatever they want. And on a sort of a small countercultural scale, you know, people can start, start bands or become artists or take non-traditional career paths and they don't have to feel like they're doing something wrong or they're stepping outside of what is expected of them, that they, they are living a finite experience that it's completely within their right to define and that their minds are, you know, the laboratory that they are the chief scientists of. But I, I recognize that that's kind of a flawed, you know, that there are holes well, in that. I was going to ask if that was moral relativism. I suppose it is. I mean, but f yeah, I mean, for us, it's like everybody is free to design their own world as long as they don't hurt anybody else and as long as they are consistently able to peer outside the edges and ask questions of the other people and, and be curious. It's about, yeah, it's about like sort of an endless seeking, an endless curiosity and an endless sort of like remodeling of, of your own point of view based on what people around you are saying. Okay. I don't think that's a, like a formula, a functional formula for the human race, but I think it's a functional approach for participating in culture and you know, feeling empowered to make art, which is really our primary focus. As a rock and roll band, we reach a lot of like young kids, teenagers and stuff, and, and we have a lot of discourse with them, and we get a lot of emails from kids who are, you know, who like live in small towns or have super religious families or feel alienated from some reason or another. And for them, you know, realizing that they have access to their own futures and that they can define how they want to live if it's something that they believe in strongly, that they're not alone in that. That's really a positive thing, I think, for the world. You know, these kids can step out from the shadows of the communities and the sort of ideas that they were raised in. Of course, I mean, that, you know, that's, that is maybe the most fundamental thing about adolescence, uh, but it's, it can be uh, empowering for kids that don't realize that they can do that. So there's, there's that, you know, and I think that, that that's good for the world in a small way because people who are engaged with the things that they love and who are living a life of their choice those people are bringing a positive energy to the world just to get a little bit um, juju-y. Um, there's positive, such a thing as positive energy, I think. But yeah. What is the crisis of the present 
And of course, that's implying that there is one. Right. And there may not be. Individually, I think the world is becoming so complex. The channels of communication are becoming so diverse. The more we find out about the universe, the more abstract and strange the questions become. And then no one is suitably equipped to answer them. But I think that that's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't see it as a crisis necessarily. I think it's it can be conceived of as a crisis if people are too stuck in their own worldviews. But I think if there are people who are able to take a step backwards, take that proverbial zoom out and realize that everybody's kind of doing the same thing in different ways and be able to step from one perspective to the other and, and ask different kinds of questions based on where they are at any given moment in time, then it just becomes a game. I think it becomes joyful and engaging. I don't think, uh, I suppose it depends what your goals are. I mean, I'm not interested in finding the answer to anything. I don't think there is the answer to anything. I think f reality is so fundamentally subjective that the best we can do is just in have fun asking questions. And if we are have the tools now to sort of step from one culture to another easily and engage with people directly, then we have there are more fun questions to ask. Do we live in a moment where old ways of explaining the world aren't adequate anymore? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know. It's difficult. I think we live in a time now where we have this constant digital simultaneity around us, it doesn't seem to be just one conversation or one climate. Mm -hmm. You know, there are infinite fragmented climates where in some subcultural realities we are in the, at the cusp of a sea change culturally where everyone is becoming more accepting or becoming more engaged politically or less engaged. I mean, there are many different ways of experiencing the reality. You know what I mean? I feel like you're talking about historical time the way that information was disseminated in the 19th century meant that there could be these kinds of sea changes, I think. You know, like books are written, people read the books, and that's it. That's what right. happened. Right, and there's you know? a very limited number of books. Yeah, and there's, you know, a very limited amount of sources of authority or sources of discourse. Whereas now, I mean, everybody's in charge of their own conversation. So if there is a sea change, would we even notice it? Because are we too subsumed into our own sort of completely mediated individual realities right. or is that the sea change you know is that what it is and in that case like that seems like a sea change that was brought about without conversation you know in, in the same way that like so much of the industrial revolution changes everything but isn't necessarily something that was reflected on in the same way that like a political change was it yeah. just sort of flowed yeah um yeah do you think this is a, a unique historical moment i, I mean everyone says you know <laughs> every moment's unique but of course there are some differences, right? Yeah. The technology is legitimately really changing things. It may be just an act of like temporal chauvinism, but I do think we live in a unique moment. I think that we're living in a moment where the means of discussion are shaping the discussion itself, which is, I mean, that is how these things happen. I mean, the printed mm -hmm. word, I think, changed the way discussions happened. Yeah. You know, one-way media, television and radio, changed the way the discussions happened. And now we're in a world of two-way media and three-way media or infinite-way media, depending on the way that you look at it. So, yes, it's new. Where do we go from here, you know? Like, is there going to be a new method of communication that comes along and is more radical than what's happening right now? It's hard to imagine. Uh, it's possible, though. Does it generate multiple realities? Subjectively, yeah, I think so. There's a million Americas inside of America because of this. There's a million global communities inside of a single global community. It just depends how far out you zoom, I guess, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, right. if you're zoomed in all the way, then the only reality is the reality that you're participating in in your particular mediated tunnel 
of communication and, and truth. If you zoom out a little bit, then you're looking at like subcultural trends across the social web, and you zoom out a little further, and you're looking at the actual structure of the web and how information moves across the planet. You zoom out even further, and it's just like one giant beeping light in right. the middle of the universe, and who knows what that means. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up the idea of information and the proliferation of information. It kind of bubbles up in a lot of different conversations, but never really gets explored in detail because usually people are going after other things and it's sort of tangential and there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And that's the whole point of that idea. Right. Um, and so we were talking about, you know, maybe this profusion of information isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, maybe you realize you can't know the world. And actually I talked to a philosopher named Timothy Morton. Mm -hmm. When I asked him about the crisis of the present, he said, basically the crisis of the present is our understanding that we can't know. It was the break where science gets you to this point of understanding that it can't get you to the end point. Yeah, no, I think that's very true. I think that's very true. I mean, but don't, don't the, didn't the wise already know that? I mean, didn't like Plato say that, you know, like the, the fundamental humility of the smart person? Yeah, I mean, I think that the world is fundamentally unknowable. Um, it's valiant to continue to try to break the atoms even smaller into smaller and smaller pieces. But then when you just, it's just like, you just keep going. It's turtles all the way down. But there is a practical side of that too. Yeah. And so there's a big divide in this project between people who conceptualize the future as having a crisis or a collapse and people who think that's preposterous and things are getting steadily better. And so let's toss the idea of crisis or collapse under the table because it's so dramatic and so much fun to talk about. You know, for a lot of people, the crisis idea merges with the information idea mm -hmm. where we run into this point where my God, the world is now so complicated and we cannot know. Okay. So you end up with this pragmatic, <laughs> Jesus Christ. You end up with this pragmatic problem where you can't manage because the systems are so, so complicated. Effectively, we build social and economic systems to the point at which they collapse due to our own uh, biological limits as people. I don't know, I, I read a lot of science fiction and I have, because of that, I think, kind of this one, like, sort of inherent terror of all sort of current events. It's like, I, I read everything as the premise to a dystopian science fiction novel that is just beginning. You know, so like, any given thing could be extrapolated into a crisis. But at the same time, I think it also gives me a sense of the fact that, like, I think a, a crisis is something that is a reckoning for people, you know? I think if we have an energy crisis, it will be awful, and I conceive of that as being a possibility for my generation, some kind of peak oil crisis or resources management crisis where we have to fundamentally reevaluate how we live. But I don't see that as necessarily being a bad thing. It kind of excites me on some level. I think that it would be nice to avoid those things, but I think that the human race tends to learn more by disaster than it does by forecasting. Maybe if we are driven to a point of crisis, then we can invent a different mode of living and then we can move forward. I think eventually things always balance out. I hope that I survive the crisis, whatever it is, but I also hope that I become a member of a functioning new society that takes place afterwards. I'm interested in change, you know? I think any kind of like massive change is positive, even if it may seem like it's fundamentally negative at first. There's a really good science fiction novel called Last and First Men by Olaf Stapledon. It's like a 
19th century British science fiction writer. It's a future history, essentially, of the human race, and it documents the rise and fall of, I think, 13 or 14 distinct different versions of the human race. He imagines the sort of demise of the human race, but then it comes back and we re-evolve completely as a different species from a few survivors and then, then they die out for a different reason and then by the end of the novel we're like birds living on Venus. But we're still, you know, the thread is unbroken and I, I see that as being a kind of positive and hopeful way of looking at the future, you know, like whatever happens, we will just change form. That's an interesting idea. That's completely, I think, a little bit of an um, evasive way of approaching your question, but I think that's, that's I, how yeah, I, think. I I wouldn't, I don't see that as evasive at all. It just makes me jump over to transhumanism. <laughs> yeah, sure, we can go there. <laughs> let's, let's do that in a moment. Let's talk about, though, the idea of crisis and sort of link that back to something we were talking about earlier, the idea of a different future or a better future. What does that look like? I mean, other than not collapsing, which would be nice, or maybe collapsing and forming into something else, but what are the, I've got to be careful with words here, say values or qualities that make that future better? It's hard to say. Open-mindedness, I suppose. I mean, a lack of dogmatic separation between people, a lack of, I think any future in which people do not feel like they have the moral high ground on other people is a better future. A open awareness of the fact that we are all fundamentally the same and that there is no objectively correct way to exist in the world. Mm -hmm. The way that we conceive of utopia in the West, I suppose, is of an island. I mean, utopia, Thomas More's utopia was an island. As earnest and sincere as that pursuit is, I think at the same time, if you isolate yourself from other people, from the conversation, from difference and from challenging viewpoints and from conflict, then you end up becoming myopic and, and that seems to always end in dissolution or fascism of some form. I mean, everything from the Soviet Union to the transcendentalist communities of the 19th century in the US to, you know, Jonestown. It's like it all falls apart in one way or another. And I think that's the isolation is the problem. And building those walls, the sort of dogmatic walls around your ideas. A better future is one in which people are breaking down those walls, are unisolating themselves and connecting with other people. I think it's difficult to do on a large scale and I kind of can't conceive of it happening on a large scale. Are we biologically capable of that? I don't think we are. You know, I don't think we are. I, I, I think a better future is a future in which we've either evolved past our limitations on our inability to function in large groups without power struggle and without conflict and without unequal distribution of resources. I don't know how we can get past that point. It has to be a, a hardware thing, I think, at some point. We have to just either program ourselves differently through some jump in biological evolution or some jump start in hardware that we implant in ourselves or, or begin to conceive of. So there's almost a notion there that any improvement that happens has to be self-directed yeah, and I evolutionary? Think so. I think it has to, yeah. Yeah, I think it has to be jump-started in some way. I mean, I'm not like a big like singularity mm -hmm. dreamer. I don't necessarily believe that we're going to reach a point where the human race becomes fundamentally technological and that makes us, you know, into supermen. I think that's kind of like a weird, sort of, I don't know, like very masculine point of view. <laughs> but I don't know. I don't know. I don't see how it would work. But I can imagine that there must be somewhere where either by crisis and by necessity we reformat our mores and our expectations or we somehow become a better species. But I, I, I think that the human race is fundamentally bound towards conflict. The problem is in the hardware. And if we can somehow hack it, I'm open to it. Say we do get to a point where we feel that 
God, we're in so over our heads with this world that we've created. The only way to do it is to be smarter, is to somehow actually change what we physically are. I'm sort of interested in what makes us human. Yeah. Well, uh, I don't know. You know, I think... I think asking ourselves these very questions is what makes us human, you know? Like, caring about this is what makes us human. Being concerned with being in over our heads is what makes us human. I guess that, that level of self-awareness and, and, you know, self-doubt also. I don't know if animals doubt themselves as much as humans do. I hope not, for their sake. <laughs> so that kind of gets us to the idea of, that I ask a lot of people about. Do you think there is any conversation happening now. You know, we talked earlier about, do we need to have it? Is this moment unique? But is it going on? Um, I think perhaps the most fundamental zeitgeist about the future that's happening, at least in the developed world, or the world that you know we're talking about right now and that we're in, is uh, awareness of and concern for the future. That seems to be a fairly new phenomenon in the human oh, race. So you think people are, are talking about the future? I now. think people are consumed with thoughts and conversations of the future. We're constantly trying to figure out what the future will bring, you know, on an economic spectrum, on a social spectrum. We like, when will civil rights be fully instigated for everybody? When will the economy fall apart? When will, you know, when will the singularity occur? Like what year will we have artificial intelligence? You know, and projecting the future, trying to understand technological and cultural trends in order to make money or in order to be prescient. That wasn't always the case, I think. I think in, for most of human history, it was just the present was all that really mattered. And, and perhaps a concern with one's ancestors, but mostly just not dying has been the human imperative. Whereas now it's like, how can we live longer? That's the conversation. Where will we be 10 years, 20 years from now? And that I think the fact that we live in this crazy technological age hasn't necessarily made interdisciplinary conversations happen. I think that people who desire those kinds of conversations can now seek them out effectively, but it also allows people to connect more exclusively with people that think exactly like them. And that has been perhaps damaging, maybe more damaging than, than we think. Do you think conversation actually matters? Is that what ends up making these big changes happen? I think, I mean, I don't know how much conversation perhaps matters on a global scale. I think conversation matters because it's one of the only things we can do for fun in life. You know what I mean? Like, if nothing else, then discourse is stimulating and engaging and fun. And there is a sense of discovery and curiosity and play in a conversation. In my mind, you know, that makes the individual experience worthwhile. And I can't say if that projects outwards to the race. I hope that it does. I hope that that's something that scales up and is beneficial, but I don't know, you know? I think being in contact with lots of different kinds of thinkers and lots of different kinds of people who live their lives differently from you and have different points of view makes you as an individual more creative and perhaps more excited about day-to-day -day existence. But if it strengthens a community and betters the world, one can only hope. Are you optimistic about the future? I think I am, you know, I think I really am. I'm paranoid about a lot of things, but I'm also optimistic fundamentally. Huh, explain that to me. <laughs> I mean, I recognize the possibility that there are a lot of things that can go wrong. It depends on my mood, you know. Sometimes mm -hmm. I believe in some kind of like horrific techno rapture that will destroy us all. And sometimes I think that the more human beings are born on this earth, the more solutions there are to our problems. So this was a very different sort of conversation. It was. I, it was uh, 
that was refreshing in some ways. You know, with some of the other ones, when I've gone in, I've kind of known like, okay, this thinker pursues this idea and they've developed a thesis about it and we'll explore that. And I can kind of go through all the motions in advance and really know a lot of the contours that the conversation will take. Whereas with Claire, I didn't know quite as much. And it was exciting to sort of jump into this conversation and go, okay, where is it going to go? And then to discover that she's just really interested in conversation and is really open-minded. And it felt like we were able to talk through a lot of ideas. And so let's jump in with Yacht's ideas. And then we'll talk more about other things that Claire and I discussed. Yeah, that sounds good. So I think, you know, the most important thing I really got was their idea of self-empowerment. Like everybody sort of makes their own life, makes their own mm -hmm. universe. Everybody is the center of the universe. Yeah, it's very much a do-your-own-thing philosophy. Now, what do you think Torcello would think of that? On one hand, I can see Yacht working within our current cultural context and sending these messages of be who you want to be to people who really need that message. I mean, in, in that way, it made me think of um, Colin Kammerer talking about what's good about technology. Well, the gay teen in the small town in Oklahoma has a ray of hope. Right. Right. You know, and so like I see Yacht in a way being that ray of hope. But what would Torcello say? <laughs> That's <laughs> going to be my new bracelet. Um, well, I mean, you you mentioned it briefly in your conversation with her when you, you ask her, is this cultural relativism? The answer to that, it's not cut and dry. So they are first and foremost espousing an artistic philosophy, right? This philosophy is is meant to be applied to music or art. I think that's a really important distinction we need to make. Right. The problem, though, becomes when you're putting a philosophy out in the world, it's, hell, it's not even all that clear how you apply that philosophy. Once you, you've created an artistic philosophy, it's really easy to then use that philosophy in, in non-artistic pursuits and, or just you know, in, in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. And that's when that sort of philosophy starts to get scary. One immediate example that pops into my head is, uh, and she is going to hate this, I'm sure, uh, The Fountainhead <laughs> is, <laughs> it turns out, objectivism as an, art as an artistic philosophy actually ain't so bad. Kind of works. It's when Atlas Shrugs happens and objectivism gets applied to the economy and politics and everything else in the world that... Ayn Rand becomes, well, a demon. <laughs> uh, a little bit of the us enjoying our subjectivity disclaimer here. I know there are a yep. lot of people in the series who would disagree with that notion vehemently, but um, yeah. they'll disagree um, with you later. Another one that actually just popped into my head was the Futurists in Italy in the 30s. Uh -huh. Again, an artistic philosophy that oh, interesting. the fascists in Europe really latched onto and included much of that philosophy, much of that belief system in their sort of larger social and political goals. There's something really intriguing about that that, you know, I want to get into more in another conversation now that you're bringing it up, thinking about ideas being applied in very strange ways across disciplines. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking one that we do all the time we talk about paradigm shifts. And this is something a lot of people do, but that's from Thomas Keene's scientific philosophy. And of course, when you start applying that to the humanities or the social sciences, 
you're doing a disservice to the original philosophy, maybe. Um, it's not always clear how well it applies. Yeah, let's definitely bring that back in another episode if we can. And think about that here with Yacht's artistic philosophy and what does that turn into. Claire herself says that, you know, I can justify you being a really open-minded, accepting, empathetic person who knows that everyone has a different perspective. It can also lead you to being completely within your own head and sort of discounting the uh, existence or feelings of other perspectives. Right. And without a clear divide between them, I think you really do end up with exactly the problem that Torcello is trying to get out of. How do you accept pluralism without getting into relativism? You know, how do you still condemn negative behavior? She does give some answer to that, actually. It's the, the fundamental tenet of Wiccanism, and it hurt none, do what thou wilt. I mean, she, she says that. As long as you're doing no harm to others, do what you want. That's sort of the central tenet in, well, at least her philosophy, I think. That's the, the transcendental assumption, huh? Right. Which, again, runs you into the same dilemma we've already talked about in Torcello's conversation. Exactly. Speaking of underlying assumptions, I was really intrigued by the way Claire talks about mystery and mm -hmm. kind of the knowability of the universe and her discussion of when she and Jana saw the mystery lights in Marfa, Texas. The theme of mystery, I think, is something that, you know, going back and listening to this again, I kind of wish we'd gotten into more. Mm -hmm. You know, I always have these moments listening back to the tape where I'm like, gosh, I sure should have followed up on this and this and this. And mystery was one where that was, that was a big new idea, at least explicitly in that way. Um, right. And I, I hope we get that again. I'd be surprised if we didn't, actually. <laughs> Speaking of connections, I think there's one other thing we should bring up here, and that's her connection with the transhumanists and posthumanists we've talked with. It seemed to me that her interest in the transhumanist school of thought has to do with, with her ideas of society is not perfectible. Possibly that's due to biological limitations. I like that she's very open-minded and sort of takes all of these ideas seriously and doesn't seem to have a kind of knee-jerk reaction to any of them. You know, that she's willing to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe we are biologically limited. Maybe we could improve something. But also at the same time willing to say, okay, here's looking at this sort of transhumanist idea and the idea of changing what we are, and that really seems like a total dude fantasy. <laughs> yes, I love that. <laughs> it, was, it was a critique that... I think we've been overdue to have in here. Mm -hmm. And one that, honestly, you or I might not have made. No, no, certainly. I mean, I think I don't know that I would have seen it had she not said it. No, and it totally resonated the moment she did. <laughs> yeah. Which is another reason that I think it's vitally important that we, we get more voices in here than just middle-aged white dudes. It's something that we've been struggling with. I don't think we've talked about it much on tape, but it's something we talk about fairly often that this project really is predominantly white and predominantly male. And trying to get in those other voices is so important because, I mean, hell, as, as we say in her description of the project, that nobody has a monopoly on the future. And what's worrisome is that, you know, we do our searching through the internet and there is sort of a, a certain source bias you get there. And 
judging by what we've been finding, actually a certain group of people does have a monopoly on dreaming about the future, at least in what the internet is presenting to us as the public sphere. Which is just a really, well, it's disheartening. So maybe now is, is another good time to put out a plea to our listeners. Let us know. Who are we missing? What voices are we missing? Please send us, send us suggestions. Especially if you're in the South, because I've pretty much wrapped up my Northeastern conversations at this point, and I will be starting into Washington, D.C., and further on South, going through possibly Northern Florida, definitely through Louisiana, absolutely Texas, New Mexico, Oklahoma. So those are states where we're still looking for people, and we still have plenty of openings left to bring people into the conversation. Yeah, if any of you have ideas, jump on the site, shoot us a note. We've had some really good suggestions lately, but uh, they haven't necessarily been on the route that I'm on right now. So I think that's probably it. Just one last thing I wanted to mention is I really enjoyed listening to this one. It really does sound like two old friends just having a chat. She's not dogmatic. She points out where her ideas aren't quite fully developed. I mean, I felt bad pinning her on the cultural relativism thing because I think she points out that, you know, she's not entirely sure where that goes. It was really refreshing. Claire does not feel elitist at all. Which is kind of awesome, given that she's the only legit rock star we've spoken to. That was Claire Evans of Yacht, recorded August 31st, 2012, in Brooklyn, New York. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. 